Well, friends, I'm convinced that Jesus is the hope of the world and the best thing to ever happen to humanity. I'm convinced that to be part of a thriving church is to put Jesus, his life, his love, and his teaching at the center in the very middle of all that we say and do. I'm convinced that Jesus offers us new life, rebirth, a a reconstitution of who and how we are that was from the beginning, the intent, and that Jesus offers us the motivation to provide goodness to the world that desperately needs us. And I'm convinced that following Jesus is something that every human is invited into and that our roles as Jesus followers, as ones who count themselves part of a body of faith called the church is to help each other along that path. Amen. Amen. Right? Yeah. That's what we're here to do. This is why we follow Jesus and why we call ourselves in Anabaptist tradition, a Jesus centered church, not a Jesus added church, not a Bible centered church, a Jesus centered church, because in him, as the apostle Paul says, we live and move and have our being. In him, we see the author, the writer, the the drawer out, the artist and the perfecter, the realizer of our faith. And so welcome to our new series for the month of September, Being Us, which is sort of a continuation of our series, Being Whole, the series that we just came from, where we talked about like, what is our identity? How does this human life work? How are we not just functional Gnostics, but we're whole beings created in the image and likeness and love and communal nature of God to do good work in the world and then being us. So if that's who we are, if that's our kind of marching orders as the body of Christ, the extension, the hands and feet and nostrils and eyebrows and ears and scalps and hair and feet and toes of Jesus, if that's who we are, then how do we do it? And so throughout this month, we're going to be talking about our core values and essentials as a Jesus centered mission, motivated, peace oriented, compassion, saturated Anabaptist church. And that is what we are in for and watching online. That is what you are in for, for the next month. And so today where we're headed and what we'll jump right into is, so then why, why Jesus of all the things that you could believe in the history of humanity and the history of civilization, in the history of religion, of all the things that you could put your faith, your trusting into your relational equity into Why would we choose to follow, not just believe, but follow Jesus with our whole being? Now, um, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles. If you have one, either uh, in person or on your phone. And those of you watching online, if you want to just open another tab, uh, or if you have a physical Bible there, open your Bible. We're going to do, this sermon is unapologetically Bible heavy. Bible heavy. We're going to truck through a lot of it and it won't be boring. It'll be super meaningful, but we're going to do John chapter one, John chapter three, and Mark chapter 10, John chapter one, John chapter three and Mark chapter 10. Okay. So uh, John chapter three will really be the focal point for our, our teaching and our study uh, today. Um, But John chapter three is set against the the backdrop of everything that's happened before it. It's, It's actually set against the backdrop of John chapter one. And maybe you've heard the opening line, John one, one, uh, the beginning of John's curated gospel. Most scholars think this is attributed to the apostle that Jesus loved, but more likely it's, it's a, um, 
like a group of people surrounding this apostle very late, probably in, in the 90s. So uh, the late half of the first century still, um, you know, uh, in the realm of eyewitness to the accounts of Jesus. But late John has had some time and process with his squad to say, what is it that we actually believe about this? What is it that we've seen and witnessed? And my goodness, we've had some years, some decades now to, to see the effect to see the effect of like how the church, the body of Christ has taken, sh- taken shape. And so John chapter one, verse one, maybe you've heard it before. It starts like this in the beginning. Whoa. John chapter one, not Genesis chapter one, John chapter one, verse one, not Genesis chapter one, verse one, John chapter one, verse one says in the beginning. So he's referencing back to that. We know this story. We know how things like got their roots, got their start. Genesis one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then later on in Genesis, uh, he, he looked at all that all he had made. And he said that it was good or complete is the actual word. It was complete. It was made whole. It was good. It was satisfying is exactly what God intended. But then John changes it. He takes it back a couple paces, even before the inception of creation of the cosmos, everything that God made, he takes it back a step. And uh, it goes like this, John one, one to five in the beginning of the word. Whoa. The word, the logos already existed. The word was with God and the word was God coming in hot right out of the gate in the beginning, the word already existed, not the cosmos, not the chaos, not the formless void that the spirit was hovering over in the beginning, the logos uh, already existed. And the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light not darkness, not chaos, not formlessness. His word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the chaos, in the darkness, in the void. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never put it out. The the darkness can never overcome it. The darkness can never extinguish it. Okay. So what are we reading here? We're reading, um, really a Greek tradition that uh, the early church and John are commenting on. So the brilliance of the writing of scripture, remember that the, the written word of God is not a flat text. It's like when we read the scripture, we're either only reading for ourselves or we're only reading ancient record. It's both. We're, we're reading an ancient record of our forefathers um, of faith that have gone before, before us and have clarified things. But then we're reading the illuminated word, written word of God that is for us. We can learn from the past experience it in the present and hopefully continue on the path into the future. But that's a whole nother sermon. Okay. So when you think about the written word, now imagine yourself as an ancient Jew or Israelite uh, hearing this for the first time and you hear the word word, your mind would immediately go to the written word. And in your consciousness, what was the written word? You can shout it out. Or even if you're watching online, what was it? What's that? Torah. Torah. Absolutely. Let's back up even before that. So the, the Torah is, is teaching. That's what it means. Instruction. And it's most typically defined as the five books of uh, the old Testament of the, of the Hebrew Bible. But if you go back even further before the formation of the old Testament canon, what is the thing that God wrote 
to Moses to give to his people. It rhymes with Shmen commandments, the 10 commandments written, written down on these tablets by the finger, the very finger of God given to Moses as a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant for instructions and guidelines for what it means to live and breathe and make your way in community. And then the Abrahamic covenant was really simple. It was like you, I've called you out. I'm calling you out of one way into another way, into another way. I'm calling you away from one life into another life. And then we fast forward to the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant. And we read that God has gone a little bit further. I'm actually going to write to you. You're going to be my people. You're going to have instructions for what it means to be set apart. And then Jesus comes into the picture. And this is what John is referring to here about even before any of that happened, you were still part of the mind of God. Jesus was there in the beginning. The written Torah is predated amazing by the living, the living word. And his name is Jesus. Now in Greek consciousness, um, which is likely what John is also referring to here, the logos just meant the reason, the, the reason for the cosmos, the reason that things are the way that they are, or um, the reason for why things came to be how they are. This is the logos. So in Jewish con- consciousness, what's the written word? It's Torah instruction, teaching scripture written by the finger of God, given to the community to steward and follow. And then in Greek consciousness, the logos is like, yes, but here's the philosophy. Here's the divine reason for why things are the way that they are and why they came to be how they are. But here we read John backing up a few paces is like, Oh, you missed it. It's so much better friends. It's so much better than this. You missed it. That Jesus is the logos that Jesus is the eternal word, that Jesus is the living letter, that Jesus is the living word, the logos, the source of the intellectual, moral, and spiritual life of all that is human. You, me, here, online, ancient Israelites, Hebrews, Jews, all that it means to be human is in Jesus, that in Jesus was life and the life John puts it was the light of humanity. And then as the wonderful scholar N.T. Wright says, uh, Jesus, he is the light as well as the life. He illuminates, but he also shows how. God is not transcendent somewhere else, but from the beginning of the inception of the cosmos, God was like, I'm going to show them how to do it. I'm going to give them somebody, something myself, uh, the instruction, the living word of how to follow. He is the light as well as the life. And he writes says, the foundation of all the various forms of being and thought in and by whom all created things live and from whom all obtain understanding and reason. So in the beginning was Jesus, the logos in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus is and was, and continues to be the Genesis, the center of it all. I'm going to repeat that again. Again, in the beginning was Jesus, the logos, Jesus is, and was the Genesis and the center of it all. That's my intro. That's my intro for today's teaching. Buckle up. Okay. Okay. So let's jump into this rebirth section. John chapter three. I'm going to read all the way through John chapter three, verses one to 21. Um, a very familiar passage. If, if you're having trouble placing it, if you've ever watched like an NFL game, you will see John three sixteen with some like brightly colored hair style or a t-shirt that, that says that on it. It's, it's made its way into certainly evangelical culture, but in just common culture, um, 
today. And that's for a reason. This is an accessible, memorizable, but deeply misunderstood section of scripture. A lot of us grew up in traditions like, oh, John 3.16, this is when I invited Jesus into my heart. Not my mind, not my guts, but my heart, which is interesting. Like how little is Jesus? What chamber does he fit in? Okay. John chapter three, verse one to 21. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Now that's a bit of a translation in the text. He might not have been a Pharisee. He was part of the Jewish council. And we, we learn this later as Jesus is heading towards his cruci- crucifixion. At any rate, this is a religious scholar, um, a temple leader, part of the, he, he was a broker for religion who, um, his name is Nicodemus. And after dark one evening, or after the darkness is the actual rendering. So again, John's referring back to something here. He's already referred to darkness. So after in, in the chaos, John is helping us to understand this religious lawyer, leader, temple council member. He comes in the cover of chaos. He comes to speak with Jesus teacher or rabbi. He said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. That's it. Not lead us, not save us. Just teach, give more words, more instruction. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence enough that God is with you. And Jesus replied, just stop some right there. I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't ask anything. He's like, oh, you seem like a good guy. And she's like, yeah, you got to start this all over. You have to relearn the whole thing. You need to be rebirth. Now in common Christian culture, this is where we get the term born again, born again. I'm a born again Christian. Now think about that for a second. I saw a couple of you cringe when you hear born again, Christian, how many of you by show of hands, you're like, that's a, that's a positive term positive term. Okay. One or two. Yeah. How many of you would say born again, Christian? You're like, yikes. I never want to go out for dinner with those people. Yeah. A few of us. So interesting. And such a muddy, a a muddy phrase. There's a, a number of things happening here. There's the Christianified or the Christianese version of what this means. It's like when you're little in the stairwell of your church, you invite Jesus into your heart and you get to go to Swishalai after. Whereas what Jesus calls us to is much, much deeper. For some of us, that's a really meaningful decision. And, and it's, a, um, it's, it's a whole life. It's, that's the beginning. I have a good friend who was saved uh, from their life of sin and debauchery when they were four years old. Get it? Because they're little, but, but never turned back. We're like, no, I believed in Jesus. I confessed Jesus, continued to follow Jesus, still love Jesus, would count myself born again. It's great. But for many of us, it's like, yikes, that phraseology doesn't do us any favors. Okay. So Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again or born from above rebirth, the the phrase actually in Greek isn't born again. It's rebirthed or born from above. Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God, which is what the Jewish people as part of their covenant tradition were absolutely hoping for the kingdom of God, the presence, the reinstatement of the nation of Israel and the presence of God in her manifest destiny. Like it was always meant to be in Jesus addresses that headlong and says, unless you're born from above, unless you are rebirthed, rebirthed by the hand, by the hand, by the presence of God, you cannot see the kingdom, the reign of God. What do you mean? Exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man referring to himself, go back into his mother's womb and be born again, be rebirthed. And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of what? 
Hmm, interesting. Not the written word, not born of Torah, not born of instruction, not born of teaching, but born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I tell you, you must be born again or rebirthed. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't really explain how people are born in the spirit. Jesus is making a point here. There's a new thing happening and Nicodemus is not really catching it, not following. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. I mean, we're, we're children of the covenant here. So how is it that we're meant to be born again? And Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher. And yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen. And yet you just won't believe our testimony referring to the kind of um, religious revolt against Jesus and his disciples at the time, who even went so far to say as like, even the miracles you do are likely a possession of Satan. Like nothing good comes from you. I tell you the truth. Uh, what we know, what we have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about the earthly things, how can you possibly believe it if I tell you about the heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man, a reference back to Daniel chapter seven, a title that Jesus uses for himself all the time, right at the right hand of uh, an equal with the authority of the father in, in, in all of creation, all of eternity. It's a whole different sermon. But the son of man has come down from heaven And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him, who who expresses faith, who faithings in him will have, what are those two words there? Eternal Eternal life. life. This is a crazy claim of Jesus Jesus here. Wonderful, grace-oriented, merciful, eternal claim. Remember, most scholars would say at the time, um, religion itself, but certainly this form of Judaism at the time, didn't have an economy of like eternal life. You know, you lived this life good and here and you hope for the kingdom of God good and here. And then whatever is over there is whatever is over there. And Jesus is, is repainting a whole new way. No, there is something. This life is not it. You know, if you are a victim of your own sense of divine karma of like, well, I'm sick is probably because my parents did something or because they're sick. That is, we're breaking the chains here. God is here to give you life and li- Jesus is here to give you life and life to the fullest. So that everyone who believes in him, referring to himself, will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. There's the NFL sign in the crowd. God sent his son into the world, not to judge or condemn, not to judge or condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already self-judged or been judged for not believing already in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact that God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness, the chaos, the void. People loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil just hate the light. They want nothing to do with it, refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. Isn't it amazing to zoom out and read the whole chapter, the whole context of what has happened here? Now, yes, question. Yeah. Um, Nicodemus was a teacher though, right? Yep. 
So was he actually giving Jesus a compliment there, though? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you can read, um, if you didn't hear that online, Nicodemus is a teacher, so isn't he, isn't he giving Jesus a compliment? For sure. We don't read of any other record of any other part of the Sanhedrin or Jewish council or Pharisees or Sadducees come and saying a word, good teacher. Um, he comes under the darkness of night because he's nervous. He, there's something about this Jesus, and he sticks up for Jesus later um, in, in John's gospel. Uh, but right now, it's just a sense of curiosity. Like, could this be? Could this, like, we know that you're a teacher. I cannot deny the miracles that we've heard and seen, but like, what's the deal? Like, what are you here to do? And then Jesus just goes after it. He's like, I'm here to change the whole thing to show you that uh, you can't just rest on your religion anymore, that there's a rebirth, a renewal, a, a rebirthing that needs to happen. And it doesn't just include the children of the promise. Like it's open to the Gentiles as well, which is bananas. In fact, in, uh, if you back up in, um, uh, John chapter two, Jesus has performed his first miracle at a wedding in, in Cana. Do you remember what, what he did? Made like 900 bottles of wine out of baptismal tank water, out of a, a cleansing water. He's like, yeah, go check the water. And they go over, big party has had. And then right after that, he goes to Jerusalem. He leaves Cana, goes to Jerusalem and he fashions a whip and drives out the money changers in the temple. Now, why is he ticked off about that? It's not just because Jesus doesn't like, you know, us sell, selling meeting house t-shirts. It's not, it's not anything to do with that. It's actually in the outer courts of the temple. That was the only spot where the Gentiles and poor people or sick people in particular could bring their sacrifices. And the, the Jewish leaders or the temple um, organizers at the time had set up um, uh, booths and things to buy in the outer court. So if that's the only place that you can come as a sick person or a Gentile person, you are out. So think about that. You're bringing your sacrifice. You've likely made the trek to Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's Passover and it's, uh, it's a festival. You get there and you arrive with your sacrifice because you believe this is what God has and wants you to do. And you're shut out by the very religion that you're supposed to be invited into. So Jesus fashions a whip, turns over the tables, drives them out and says, you're, you doers of evil my father's house will be a house of prayer. It will be a house of connection with the divine, not restriction and not exclusion. And then Jesus goes a little bit further and claims that he is the divine temple and says like, you can tear, tear down this temple and it'll be rebuilt in three days. He's referring to the resurrection. And this is one of the first instances in John's gospel where he's accused of blasphemy. It was like, let's kill this guy. Seriously, what more do we need this guy? And then we read that night that Nicodemus, exactly right, is like, I gotta sort this out. I gotta sort this out. So Nicodemus now, part of the Jewish council, comes under the cover of night and darkness because he was both afraid and curious. And what is the first thing that Jesus says to him? Doesn't address the miracle thing. Doesn't address necessarily. I don't think he's disrespectful. Uh, the first thing that he confronts um, Nicodemus with is you just have to do this over. You have to be reborn. Now this is intentional. In the Abrahamic covenant in particular, um, if you were a Jew or an Israelite, you were born into the covenant. You were children of the covenant. That's what you called yourself, right? So by virtue of your family and your bloodline, you're like, we are blessed and accepted by God. And the Gentiles or the pagans have to do a little bit of extra work, but we don't. We are children of the promise, born, in, born into covenant, assuming the promise and blessing of God. And Jesus says, it's not enough anymore. It's restrictive. It's not inclusive. 
Rebirth from above, from the spirit is now necessary. You're not just born or assumed into promise, but actually the gates have like cracked open even further. Being born again is to realize and identify that all of us are God's kids, that all of us are born into promise, that all of us are part of God's family. And the marker of this covenant is no longer law, but love. Crazy. The marker of this is no longer law, but love. I've seen a couple of hands come up. I'm going to come back to it in just a second. I just want to truck through this part because I'm already running out of time. So why then? Why did God choose to do any of this in Jesus? To condemn, to, to punish, to discipline the Jews or the Israelites or the pagans, the Greeks or the Gentiles? No, we stop at verse 16 all the time and we forget verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn or judge it, but to do what? To save it, to redeem it is probably a better translation, to redeem it through himself, to not to judge, but to save in the face of ancient religion, religion. And in the face of like somebody who knows their stuff, Nicodemus, Jesus says, we've got to start over. Let's start over. Start over with me, Jesus at the center. Start over with me, but be part of this saving work. Follow me, which was the, the distinctive call of a rabbi. It's what you said to your earliest disciples. And Jesus just like pew, 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 popping these off with a number of different people. They're like, well, what, what rabbis don't do this? Like there's a, there's a process. And Jesus like, no, 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 no. Come and follow me. Not just belief, not the intellectual ascent, not the uh, um, embracing of a certain philosophy, but whole life trust. We would call it discipleship, being apprentices, little Jesuses who follow him, uh, into the world and inviting more along to the journey. Okay, so we're going to jump really quickly to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27, just for sake of time. Um, we won't read it. I'll just give it a, a quick flyby. So um, Jesus is is already been ticking off the religious leaders in Mark chapter 10. Um, and he, he gets to a point where he's headed back to Jerusalem and he's met on the road in his travels on the way to Jerusalem by a rich young ruler or a, a rich man. There's a rich man that comes and he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? So there's a lot happening there. This is not a, a negative story. And so often we're like, oh, this rich young ruler, what a jerk. He's probably arrogant. No, no. He's coming to Jesus. Again, the same risk that Nicodemus took. He's coming to Jesus in, in the day, in the day this like wandering itinerant rabbi who some people think is like a seed of Satan. He is brave enough to come and say, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've heard you say it. What exists beyond this? And how, do, how am I part of that? Like, I, I want to be part of this story, this continuing story. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only one is truly good. And that is God, the father. Now, interesting there. It's not like, oh, why do you call me good? It's, I see Jesus and I'm like, oh, interesting that you call me good because we know that only one is truly good and that is God. So Jesus is like, ta-da, you're getting it. Now, you know what you're supposed to do. Keep the commands. In fact, he lists them, right? All the way up to honor your father and your mother. And this guy, I don't think with arrogance says, yeah, 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 of course, I'm a Jewish boy. Yeah, like I'm now an adult. Most Jewish boys in particular had the majority of the, the Torah, if not the Tanakh, the, the whole Hebrew Bible memorized by the time that they were 14 to 16. So this guy's like, of course, what do you, no, no, that's easy, easy. Like that's, I, I was trained in Torah. Yes, I've kept them all since I was a young boy, no problem. Uh, and he says, Jesus is okay, but there's one thing that you still lack or that you still haven't done. Um, and the man is very wealthy, right? He's accumulated a lot of wealth. He says, go and sell 
all that you have and give it to the poor. I, I think we missed this. I'll speak for myself. I have missed this so often. What were, what was one of the markers of Jesus ministry? It was touching and healing people and also inviting the poor, right? So this isn't Jesus being like, ah, oh, these rich people, I have no patience and no time for them. He will say later that it's very difficult for rich people who have amassed wealth and made that their identity to enter into the kingdom. It's not impossible, but it is very, very difficult. But this is not that lesson for this guy. Instead, he's saying, oh, oh, this is what it takes. This is what it takes. So there's just one thing you like. Yes, I see that you've been faithful in learning Torah since you were a boy. You've kept the commands. You've amassed all this wealth, which in um, Jewish consciousness was the blessing of God. If you had money, or a wife who could bear you children or land. It was like, God, Yahweh has blessed you. You know, God has blessed you. So it's like, oh, just go get rid of all that, that in order to serve the poor. And then, and this is the pivotal part of the passage. And you're, uh, what does it say that Jesus says to him? And then come follow. and follow me. Jesus, it's not a test. Jesus is not saying, yeah, go sell it, go sell it all. And then we'll see where we're at. Let's try and find me. Jesus is willing to wait. It says, come, just like he, he called Simon Peter, just like he called John, just like he called all of his disciples, the sons of Zebedee, come and follow me. This is the rabbinic call, an extension of you're part of my thing now. You're part of my family. Come and follow me. If this man had obeyed and done, got rid of the trappings that had, caught, that had got him caught up, we would likely be reading about another disciple who was like, absolutely, I want to be part of this. I'm willing to be reborn, rebirthed, to, to give away my wealth for the benefit of others and to be an apprentice, a disciple, a little Jesus following in the footsteps of this ancient rabbi. And yet, what do we read the text says in Mark's gospel? That the man... Jesus with love in his heart, with love in his heart, uh, Mark's gospel says, uh, extends the call of a rabbi, come and follow me. And yet the man went away, sad, dejected, for he had amassed great wealth. Think about the polarization that that dude is experiencing right there. I was like, wait a minute. Like, but all this stuff I thought was a blessing from God. But now it seems like this messenger or Messiah or incarnate God is telling me to get rid of it for the benefit of others in order to follow. But this will require more than just intellectual belief. It, it'll, it'll require a whole life transaction. I am going to have to leave behind what was and die to that self and be reborn and renewed into this new version of self. And he went away Sad. And then Jesus has a little bit of a lesson plan there. Um, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? It's like, uh, you know, uh, a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's just, it's so tough. And then the disciples are like, this freaking guy, like talking about Jesus, seriously, like what chance do any of us have? And Jesus says, you idiots, you have no idea what we're talking about. No, no, he doesn't. He says, it, you're right. It seems absolutely impossible. What I'm saying seems nuts, but all things are possible through God. It is now possible. The kingdom of God is here. The possibility of rebirth, of putting Jesus at the center of your life and faith and conduct. Jesus is here showing you how to do it. Jesus says, come and follow me, not you. Don't follow your way. Come and follow me. And throughout his ministry, Jesus' way is helping. It's not hoarding. 
It's not amassing wealth or trying to prove promise. The Jesus way is helping, not hoarding. The Jesus way is not just intellectual assent or belief. It is whole life. It is whole life, not just a single decision in the stairway of your church when you're little. It's whole life discipleship, whole life following, following the way of Jesus, being a disciple. The Jesus way is being attached to doing, not just learning. It's not just the written word, which is helpful. Um, one of the, the, um, the later letters in the New Testament, first Timothy says the, the written word is helpful. All scripture is God breathed. It possesses the breath of God and is useful for training, correcting and rebuking and moving us towards righteousness, Christ likeness, but it is not the incarnate word. It's not the living word. If you want to know how you work out your faith, if you want to know what faith looks like in bodily form, follow <clears throat> Jesus. The way of Jesus is, is attached to doing and not just learning. And the Jesus way is love, not law, not just law, loving God and loving others. And the Jesus way is invitational, not exclusive. And so my friends, why Jesus? Because Jesus invites us to be our whole selves following him in the way of love and inviting others along the path. In Jesus, we see what God looks like and what does God look like? Love. And so this is our calling as a church to be Jesus centered, to be disciples, apprentices of the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the anointed one, the only begotten son, the son of man, Jesus, ones who follow with our whole selves to be helpers, to be doers and not just hearers, to embody love and not law and to follow Jesus wherever he leads. And so my brothers and sisters, I am convinced that Jesus is the hope of the world and the best thing to ever happen to humanity. I am convinced that to be part of a thriving church is to put Jesus, his life, his love, his teaching at the center of all that we do. I'm convinced that Jesus offers us now, just like he did to Nicodemus, rebirth and new life and goodness in a world that needs to experience that. And I'm convinced that following Jesus is something that all of us are invited to do. This is where you would say, amen. Yeah. <laughs> May we continue to be Jesus people gathered as a Jesus church to introduce others to the Jesus path. Brothers and sisters, may we continue to be Jesus people gathered as a Jesus church to introduce others to the Jesus path. And it's in Jesus name we pray these things. Amen. 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 And amen.